Rick Madison, Rick and Friends. Welcome back. Uh, it's been a while. It took a little bit of a sabbatical, but uh, back. And I, I came back with um, a very special guest. His name is Dr. Ron Baldessari. Welcome to the big show. Thank you very much, Rick. Nice to be here with you. So let's, uh, there's so many things I want to ask you, but you are a corneal specialist. We keep hearing that. Um, let's, let's talk about before you even became this, this corneal specialist, was there a moment when you decided, I want to be an ophthalmologist? Like, this is what I want to do. You know, you, you kind of develop that as you're going through your medical training. I think the thing that was made the biggest impression on me growing up was um, I was about 17. I was driving around my neighborhood, just going to the supermarket or something like that. And I saw, I witnessed uh, an accident. You know, somebody got T-boned. The cars went flying, one hit the, a, a light post and, uh, you know, everything stops. And I realized, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. You know, and, and these two guys were in a school bus and they obviously had some, you know, training. They, they ran out and they calmed the people down. There's not much you can really do in the field, but they calmed them down. They, you know, because the people were in shock. And I just remember feeling so totally helpless. Mm. And then right then, right, that was this, the time I said, okay, that's it. You know, I never want to feel this hopeless to help. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go into medicine. And I was about 17. And then by the time I was 19, I was accepted into medicine. So I was, I was uh, creeping you, as I often do with my guests on LinkedIn. And, and you, you were um, accepted, uh, what is it called? The um, J.W. McConnell Entrance Scholarship. Explain to me, I, I haven't heard of that. What is that scholarship all about? Um, well, McGill annually gives three large full-ride scholarships. Um, and the J.W. McConnell is one of them. And so I was lucky enough to apply. You have to apply and, and, and write to them. And, you know, there's a lot of forms you have to fill out and, and, and documents you have to submit. And um, I was lucky enough to, to win the entrance scholarship. What were your marks like? Um, my marks were pretty good. I mean, I think... I, I think I had about a 92 or 93 average overall. But I think they look at a lot more than that because while I was doing that, I always had a part-time job. I worked in the summers. Um, I played competitive baseball right up until the second year of university. Um, high school, I played football. I played, you know, I wrestled. So they're, they're looking at that. And then you, you also have your community things that you have to do. I was, on the, you know, it was a Catholic school, so there was a pastoral club, and, and so you, you, know, you organize food drives, things like that. And so they look at all the other things. Everybody's got, you know, everybody who applies has good marks. See, I took you as a mathlete. A mathlete? <laughs> That's a new one. <laughs> you know, he's in chess club, and he gets good marks, but I, I didn't see the, all this athletic side, the wrestling and, and everything else. You know, I've always been a very physical guy. Like, I, I love working hard physically. And so no matter what sport it was, you know, I, I like the physical. Like, I remember 
you know, they, I'd never played basketball. Basketball in Montreal was not a big thing. And grade six or seven, they, you know, they said after school, we're going to do with basketball. I said, okay. So I think I got fouled out in about the first three minutes. I was like, what do you mean I can't hit this guy? <laughs> so so, so the, the, the more physical mano a mano kind of sports is, is, is what I always enjoyed. And, and you strike me as a bit competitive. And it, it was that harnessed as a kid or is that something that came to you later on in life? Because I know you've competed at a very high level for uh, in triathlons. Yeah, I mean, I, I always just enjoyed working really hard and, and getting better. So, you know, the, 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 it wasn't so much the competition against other people. It was always against myself. How, how much, how, how can I make this better? How much more can I do today than I did yesterday? Um, and that sort of dovetails nicely into triathlon because, you know, if there's three disciplines, you have to be reasonably good at all three to be competitive. And when you're on the course, you know, it's a staggered start. So different age groups go out at different times. So there's tons of people on the course. It's not like you can tell who's ahead of you and who's behind. It's a race against yourself. And so, you know, the training becomes addictive, you know, it's fun and, and you become really fit. And then, uh, you, you want to see progression. You want to see yourself getting better at every discipline. And then as you go the longer, uh, races, then you have to dial in new things that you really never thought of, like your race nutrition. And you have to figure out how much liquid do I have to consume based on how hot is it? How humid is it? Um, if you get those things wrong, then, you know, you get stomach cramps and, you know, you're going to you're gonna bonk. And so there's a lot of different things to consider, and that's kind of fun to do. Your idea of fun and mine are two completely different <laughs> things. <laughs> but the, the one part that's interesting to me is the um, when you hit that wall of pain, and I've heard this from other triathletes, is that there's a wall you have to run through, swim through, bike through. When... Like, what does that look like when, because it's, it's sometimes it's about managing pain, isn't it? You know, I've heard that, but I never got that. Like I, I've done marathons. Uh, I, I've, I've hit points. Usually they say in a marathon, you know, about 20 miles in, uh, you're, you're going to hit the wall, they say. And then there's a kind of a mental barrier. But I mean, I, I, you know, we're so dumb. I was in medical school training for a training, training for a marathon. Then there was like no internet and no, no books, no magazines. Uh, running was just becoming popular. And, you know, we found me and a buddy found a book. Okay. So do this, do that, do that. You know, we, I think we trained about like 10 times. And one of the things was do a very long, hard run the week before your marathon. So, okay. So we'll run 20 miles, you know, the Sunday before. And you're going to medical school and whatnot. And, you know, that's when, that's the only time I've really felt it because we overtrained. Mm -hmm. And then at 20 miles in, you feel pretty crappy. And then you, you break through. Triathlon's a bit different in, in a sense that you're not, you're not always doing such huge distances. Like when you're doing a half Ironman, because uh, I haven't done a full Ironman. I've done a half. That's the longest I've done. You know, you're, you're cycling for 95K. And if you're going to do that, you can't go all out. Mm. You have to pace yourself. And so, 
you know, you split up your, your whole day into thirds. How fast am I going to do the third of the swim, the middle third of the swim, the last third of the swim, and you sort of progress. And so you're never really at that point of hitting that wall and, and then potentially collapsing. So I think if you manage things well, you can, you can progress. And then maybe once you've hit your limit in every discipline, you might push it a bit too hard and then you crash, you know? But I've, I never really pushed myself to the point of collapsing. So the part that's interesting is that you were doing this during med school. So let's think about that for a second. I, you know, I've heard med school is, is quite difficult and they, I think they do that on purpose. What was, what's the reason behind trying to, to run and do marathons? Was that a way to just decompress for you? Um, at the time, very few people were running marathons. So it was more of a challenge, mm. you know, like, oh, see that? That looks really hard. Oh, I want to do that. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's in my yearbook. My yearbook is like, if it isn't hard, he's not going to do it. <laughs> is, that, is that where the, the corneal specialist thing came from? Was that it was uh, just seen as, as something else that I can conquer? Yeah, I mean, you're... When you're at every step of your education, you always have to make a decision about what's next. So, you know, the first step, get into medicine. Okay, you're into medicine. Once you're in medicine, okay, what field do I want to get into? Well, you know, ophthalmology was pretty tough. You know, there were 300 applicants at McGill and, and two positions. Jeez. <laughs> you know, and then after that, if you want to do a fellowship, same deal. You, you know, so there were three top-notch places for my fellowship and you travel around the country interviewing and you know they have a match and finally you get into the cornea but circling back to why cornea because cornea as opposed to other fields in within ophthalmology ophthalmology is a lot of subspecialties but cornea and maybe oculoplastics where you you know work on the skin of the eyelids and, and things like that, more like plastic surgery. Those are the two fields where your work is immediately recognizable to either other people or other professionals. So, you know, when you're doing a corneal transplant, you're basically taking out somebody's cornea and you're sewing in a new cornea. And your sewing has to look nice because if it doesn't look nice and it's not symmetrical, the results aren't going to be very good. And so the symmetry and the, um, the phenomenal outcomes, because you take somebody who has a completely clouded corneal scar and you replace it with a clear cornea, it's very gratifying. It's not like you take somebody's appendix out, you know, they, they walk around, yeah, they're back to normal. But when you, it's not immediately visible. But with that kind of thing, if somebody only has one eye and you repair that one eye and now they, they have vision, that's tremendous. I mean, the, the, the benefit to somebody's quality of life that you can provide is enormous. And then there's all, like when I started, there, there's all these other things that I sort of knew was happening in cornea. Laser surgery was just starting. I mean, that was about in 93 
um, the way that we were doing cataracts was changing and we were starting to use ultrasound instead of manually removing the lenses. So all these really, really great innovations were happening at that time. And so it was hugely attractive to me to be sort of riding on the crest of the new wave of, of things that ophthalmology could do. And so that's what really attracted me to, to cornea. Do you ever walk around the house with gloves on? Because, I mean, like you, your hands are, are vital to what you do. Like, I mean, I, I would think there should be gloves or, or some sort of padding on them at all times. <laughs> you know, I do a lot of, I guess, what people would think are risky things. Well, you know, because we've motorcycled together. And um, and I worry about it constantly. Like, I, I think if he falls off his dirt bike, like, I mean, I, I'm going to feel awful. Yeah, well, you know, the one thing that wrestling and football taught me is how to roll. So luckily, I only separated my shoulder, but I didn't injure my hands. <laughs> so, and I don't shy away from hard work around the house. I mean, uh, you know, I just installed a new uh, door on my fence, like my six by four foot door, just the wind blew it and busted everything. So, mm -hmm. you know, but I like tinkering. I like fixing things. Yeah, I don't, well... Just, I don't worry. I'd rather you didn't. Um, the one thing when you were talking about the gratifying work and it, and so you've, you've done a number of surgeries you've done, you've, you've dealt with car accidents and everything else. Is that still, is there still a buzz from that when somebody says, Oh my gosh, I can, I can see across the street. I can get my vision back. Like, is there, do you still get that lift? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's so many new cool things that that come in ophthalmology every once in a while and so you know your bread and butter cataract surgery tends not to be incredibly exciting you know you can always try to be better at what you're doing but there's not a lot of innovation in in that field what has changed are the lenses that we use that can give people incredibly good near intermediate and distance vision without glasses they don't need to wear glasses anymore and you can be like 65 and function 95 percent of the time without glasses that's really cool and you have to be very good with your surgery for that to work um but i mean we've put in artificial irises you know somebody who's lost their iris through a trauma and so we've we, you know we have the ability to reconstruct and that i find gratifying because it takes a lot of planning before and these are often one-off situations where you know you're presented with a problem and you need to fix it and uh, there's no cookbook for it and I think the best fellowship training are those programs that kind of teach you how to be a MacGyver mm -hmm. you know because you've mastered the normal procedures and what makes somebody good and then great is the ability to think on their feet and problem solve in real time. You know, I remember one time this guy came in, he had a, somebody had assaulted him with a broken beer bottle. And uh, it was, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning. I had the call. The guy's unfortunately ruptured his globe. And so when I look, there's a, there's a chunk of his eye missing. And now, so, okay, so how are you going to stitch this back together? Because you, you can't put, stitches like you put in a, in your skin mm -hmm. if you tighten it up the stitches anywhere in the eye the cornea is no longer round and you're never going to see so 
we don't have an eye bank in Kelowna. I don't have access to tissue on demand. And so, okay, um, I'm going to have to use his own eye. So what I did, because, you know, his structures are, are anywhere from a half a millimeter to one millimeter thick. And so what I did was I, I got an area that was adjacent to the part that was missing and cut down halfway, made a, like a skin flap, but as an eye flap, part of the white part, the sclera. And then I folded it over the area that was missing and sewed it up that way. So you can do these unusual one-off things um, and those tend to be, you know, exciting but frustrating at the same time because they usually come in at, you know, 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night. And, but then they're the most gratifying cases to do. So when you do something like that, which is, you know, groundbreaking in a lot of ways, do you, is that something you share with, with peers? Is this something yeah. that you would, you would share with, I don't know what channels you use, but it, it seems like that would be information that other ophthalmologists yeah. could use. Yeah, you, usually what I'll do is if I have a really interesting case, I'll record it. And then, you know, at most of our national meetings, I'm asked to moderate a session or present. So, you know, this year I presented something about uh, doing cataract surgery in patients who had these kind of procedures that were done before we had LASIK. And so I gave a talk on that. And in the past, they've, you know, they have these complicated cataract sessions. And those are the forums where you would present your case and show it. And then there's a panel of people that would say, okay, yeah, I think you did that well, or this could have been done. And it's more of a uh, sort of an educational forum for everybody. Mm-hmm. Our Canadian meetings are actually quite good, especially compared to some of the other bigger meetings. I find them actually some of the best types of meetings. So would you go to the States and then Europe? Like, are there other yeah. associations? Yeah. I mean, I've lectured in Los Angeles. Uh, 2017, I was invited to Peru. So they have their, you know, their South American meeting. So I was at their South American meeting presenting on some new lens technologies that we had adopted before the other countries. We, we get technologies before the United States. Uh, Peru, you know, Latin America, they, they get same time as us. They, they have access to this stuff, but the United States doesn't. So when you go over to these, these conferences, do you, you probably gather information as well, I would think. Uh, for a lot of them, yeah. There's a, a lot of education, fine-tuning, uh, hearing about new procedures, new medications. So they're very beneficial. When it comes to um, medical devices, we're ahead of the Americans by two to three years because their FDA process slows down everything for them. So usually the U.S. looks to us. So, for instance, the camera inlay, you know, we, we did that five or six years before the U.S., mm-hmm. and we sent them our data. Uh, the Symphony lens, we had it, you know, five years before the U.S., so I lectured on that. So, but not so much for, uh, you know, the European societies. They're, they're you know, up to date, as are Latin America. So a lot of people listening to the podcast are going, well, I have this problem, I have this issue. What... Now, we're not going to go into the rabbit hole, but is there any new procedures, techniques that 
that you find exciting that maybe some people wouldn't know about? I think the one that benefits people the most are what we call these presbyopic lens implants. So in the past, you know, if you had cataracts and you got a lens implant, it basically made your eye like a single focus camera. And we would usually set the focus for distance. And then for everything within a meter or so, you need to wear glasses. Over the past uh, eight years, there's been a number of new developments on the, the lens front that allows these lenses to act more like somebody's either bifocals or progressive glasses. Now, the difference is that in your glasses, you have to be looking in the right spot. You know, you have to tip mm-hmm. your head or look down or whatever. And when you look side to side in your glasses, you know, it gets blurry because you're looking through a blend zone. These lenses don't work that way. These lenses work when you're looking in the distance, everything's clear. When you're looking at your computer, everything's clear. You know, you look side to side, it doesn't change. When you're reading a book, it's the same clarity all the time. Now, not to say that they're perfect, but 95% of the time, if, as long as you're a candidate, because you have to be a candidate, then these technologies work incredibly well. And, and it's the same kind of um, joy and excitement that these patients have after surgery that the laser patients have. The laser patients are always very, very happy. You know, you go from, you know, not seeing anything without your glasses to boom, most 2020 or better. Let's say half of them are 2015, the day after surgery. This is the same kind of wow factor that's like, wow, I can see like it was when I was like 30. Mm -hmm. What percentage of the population, you know, and and I'm putting you on the spot here, but astigmatism, like, is there a percentage? Like, is it 20%, 30%? Uh, About 25% of the population has some degree of significant astigmatism. Um, And, you know, you define a significant astigmatism by the percentage of people who have enough that it would make their vision noticeably blurred without their glasses or without the correction of the astigmatism. Mm-hmm. And again, does it, uh, do you ever have that, that moment like in surgery where somebody's eyes exposed? Like, do you ever have that? I can't believe I'm actually doing this. Like, do you ever? Oh, I mean, there's two types of, I can't believe I'm doing this. One is when you've done something really amazing. And one is when there's something that you're not expecting. <laughs> two different feelings. <laughs> but, but I mean, the, the, I don't know what it is uh, about me, but when things are going south, if something is happening that I'm not expecting, because I'm usually very well prepared for surgery, but, you know, patients are patients, and if, if they suddenly hemorrhage or something happens that I'm not expecting, then that's when everything, for me, slows down. Mm-hmm. You know, I get very focused and very calm. And I, I don't know where that comes from. Uh, my dad was a bit like that. Like, the bigger the emergency, the better he was. Mm-hmm. He was just one of those guys that, you know, the, the little things would annoy him, and he'd chirp about that. But when something bad happened, like something big, and I'm not talking about in our family, like like big, yeah. you know, all of a sudden he was like the model of calm, cool, collected, and decisive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've inherited a, a bit of that. I'm a bit more of a niggler for little things. 
So, you know, you do have those moments, um, and uh, they are stressful, but at the same time, very satisfying when something bad happens that you're not expecting and the outcome is still very good. Your, uh, your story reminds me of, so my mother was a registered nurse. My father was a, a CAO town manager type and very good, um, running big enterprises, big cities, big towns, what have you. And, and, uh, I remember my grandfather had a heart attack on our couch in our living room. And uh, so my mother slowed down and just said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to lay you down and we're just going to make you comfortable. And uh, we're going to call the, and, and my father is literally losing his mind. This is a high level, like very efficient person who I, who I see has clearly lost any kind of grip. And so my mother says, John, I need you to go get towels, make them warm, hot water, and go find this particular aspen. He goes, okay, great. He leaves. And I go, mom, what's that for? And she goes, oh, it's, it's just literally to get him out of the room. The aspirin, I understand. The towels, it's just to take some time. <laughs> and they have to be warm. And he's like, got it. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, your mom had that skill and had that training. And then, you know, it comes in handy. Oh, it, it really does. So where where do you go next? I mean... Uh, I, I feel like Vivid could exist in Vancouver. It could in, exist in Toronto. Like, why did you pick Kelowna? Um, you know, Kelowna kind of picked me. Um, I had, uh, I, I was on tenure track at McGill. So I had already gone back to McGill during my fellowship, picked out my office space and was getting ready for an academic career at McGill. And that was in 1995. And that year they announced the, the referendum. Mm. And so, you know, Quebec was, you know, in a, it was a turbulent time. There were talks that this time they were going to be successful and separate from the rest of Canada. I really didn't want to start my career in a different country. Right. So I kind of looked around and I, um, I called UBC and there was a, a cornea guy who was head of the department, uh, Dr. John Richards, and spoke to him asking if they had any academic positions at UBC. And he, he told me, no, I think we're, we're set. We have somebody coming already, but I'll keep your name. And then just as luck would have it, there was a physician in town who was a cornea specialist in Kelowna. He didn't do a lot of cornea, but he was a cornea specialist, and he was talking to this Dr. Richards and saying that, you know, he's probably going to have to retire in the next year. And God loved Dr. Richards. He kept my name and passed it on to this fellow who called me out of the blue. And then at the same time, Quebec was announcing the separation. So he said, well, why don't you come and work for six months? I'm not sure if I'm going to retire. By then, you'll know what's happening in Montreal, and then you can decide. Either you'll stay or go or whatever, but it gives you some time. So I said, sure. So I came here, and I mean, I got off the plane. I was in Atlanta at the time. It was 102 degrees and, and uh, 104% humidity. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was just crazy, <laughs> crazy hot. And I uh, got off the plane, and it was 30 degrees, dry, sunny. It was in May, I remember. And his office was right across from City Park. Beautiful. 
still some of those big old trees were then. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember. Um, and like I said, wow, this is, this is fabulous. So then I decided, I called McGill, said, look, I'm going to take a six-month break, see what happens with the, um, with the referendum. And it was so close, 5149. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been skiing at Big White, the fellow decided to pack it in, and then I said, "Okay, well, you know what? I, I could live here. I could, you know, it's not a bad gig." And so that's how I came to be here. And then we started the real cornea program because there's really no cornea program here, and we yeah. established it. And uh, you know, we do about anywhere from ten to twenty percent, depending on the year of the corneal transplants of the province, because I service the whole interior. So how many people have, you know, have you done surgeries within, within the time you've been here? Like how many people are we talking about here? Um, I've never separated out the transplants and the glaucoma surgeries, but I mean, I think at the last overall count, it was like 24,000, 25,000, somewhere around there. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you landed. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, Cologne has been awesome, and it's been a real fun place to practice. Good people to work with. Uh, fabulous weather. You know, my kids grew up here. They they love being outdoors. I mean, I just got my butt kicked by my son uh, on the bike this morning. You know, so it, we we still enjoy the outdoors. Well, listen, this is, uh, we could do this all day, but uh, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. I know you don't have a lot of it, so I uh, appreciate you taking the time to share uh, some stories, and, and hopefully uh, we'll get you back on the big show. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure.